0: Hello and welcome to series 2 of the Facing Up podcast with me, Luke Grenfell-Shaw. In 2018, I was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer, and since then, I've made it my mission to make the most of each and every passing day. This has led me to cycle on a tandem from Bristol to Beijing. Covid got in the way and I had to take a break, but now I'm back on the road. Before you hear this episode's conversation, here's a little snippet of what has happened to me on my travels over the last week. In this week's update from On The Road, I want to talk about some of the unexpected night sleep that I've had over the past week. I found myself in the town of Omolica in Serbia, and that evening I was looking for a place to camp, have a bit of time to myself, recharge the batteries... One of the best places I've found in the past, particularly going through Croatia, for a great camping spot is the local football pitch. There tends to be a veranda where you can hide from the rain. There's often a tap outside, making water and washing, pretty straightforward. And so in Ormelica, I looked for a football pitch. I found one on Google Maps. I took a turn off the main road and I took a turn off the side road down this winding path, which took me to the football pitch. When I got there, somewhat to my surprise, there was a light on and there were a couple of cars and people milling around. And as I pulled up into the car park, I was thinking, should I just turn back now? Because I don't really wanna meet people. But I thought that would just look very odd. Okay, I'm just gonna say why I'm here, I'm looking for a place to camp. And a couple of the cars went and there was one guy their dragon, and I explained to him. I tried to explain to him with the using my hands as a pointy thing to say tent. I was asking, you know, camping. Is there any camping around here? Can I camp on the football pitch? He was, he was very enthusiastic and very positive, much to my relief and surprise. I wasn't sure how people would feel about me saying, Oh, can I camp here? And then he went one step further and said, Oh, you can go into the changing room and, you know, is this okay if you've got a sleeping bag? And I was like, Oh, yeah, this is great. And it became quite clear that Dragon um, didn't speak much English. In fact, he had just one word, and that was okay. So uh, at every point, he'd be like, Is this okay? Okay. And i would be like, Okay, it's okay. Dobro, dobro. Uh, (laughs) So I was very happy to sleep in the changing room, that was definitely one up on camping out in the field, and there was even a shower, I was happy. And then Dragan invited me round, he was like, oh, you should have dinner with my family. Uh, That was the gist of it, none of this was in English. And I was like, well, I have my own food, but by all means, I would love to see your family. I end up round his place, and he had six children. One of them in particular, Murka was very sweet he's a guy perhaps like seven years old and he looked at me with such earnestness telling me all sorts of things in serbian and with absolute sincerity that i could understand what he was saying which of course i really couldn't but it's amazing because i don't think any adult could be like i'm just going to talk at you and talk at you in my own language with absolute sincerity that you do understand when I know that you don't. Whereas Mirko was just telling me about, I'm sure, all aspects of his life. He showed me his football cards, he was telling me about the chair that I was sitting on. It was a very special evening, though not one where I got much sleep in the end. There was thumping music coming from the radio all through the night, and I was wondering, oh, someone's really listening to some loud music. Maybe it helps them get to sleep two, half two in the morning, I go out into the corridor and I find the radio is just blaring full blast. No one listening to it. So I, feeling it's perhaps a sensitive thing, I turn the radio down I don't turn it off entirely in case it is lulling people to sleep. But it was whacking out full volume Serbian party tracks. So that was one unexpected evening. I thought I was going in for a quiet evening at a football pitch. turned out to be a very sociable one. Now, the following night, I was still in Serbia, but right next to the Danube at this point, the edge of some farmland, and then the river was about three meters away from me down a, a small rocky slope. That night, I decided, I would enjoy the stars and I would use my bivy bag, which had just come out from the UK. And I was very excited to do this. I also wanted to break through the barrier of, I don't always need to use the tent. Sometimes a bivy bag is also great and has its own advantages, such as looking at the stars. And there were plenty of stars in the sky that night. There was a bit of cloud cover as well. After some deliberation, it took talking to myself to get myself into the bivy bag and to not put up the tent. But I went to sleep like a stone, maybe like a log. Maybe like a stone going to the bottom of the Danube, I'm not sure. Anyway, a couple of hours later, there's a slight drizzle which wakes me up. And at that point, I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm just gonna turn over and hope it goes away. And after five, 10 minutes, it did. Then sometime later, it starts drizzling again. And I wake up, oh no, maybe I should just get out the tent. And I think about that for a bit, I'm like, "Ma, oh, I'm just gonna persevere and hope the drizzle goes away. And it does. And then the drizzle starts again, and I get up and I'm like, oh, I'm gonna get the tent out at this point. And then the back of my mind's, Luke, you've got to persevere with the bivvy bag. You've got to make sure this works. So I end up pulling my B2B jacket over my face and going back to sleep. And this happens on and off throughout the night. It's not raining, it's just a little bit of drizzle, enough to wake me up, not enough to get me to put up the tent. That morning, I wake up having had very little sleep and feeling pretty rubbish. But it was quite funny to reflect that I thought I was gonna have a really peaceful night's sleep amidst nature. And of course, it was very peaceful in a sense, but it doesn't always hold true that sometimes if you have the wrong equipment or you don't use the right equipment at the right time, you are gonna find an impact on your sleep. It's been a really beautiful week cycling along the Danube for much of it i've had the view of romania on the other side and there's been some significant climbing that's taking me up through tunnels probably 400 meters up or so and then looking down on the danube it becomes this blue ribbon meandering through the valleys, you can see speedboats zooming along, huge barges which look like these black floating matchsticks, these really long things navigating their way along the Danube. And I'm now in Romania, in Craiova, and it's been interesting. Cycling through Romania, there have been some big differences. Firstly, there are dogs around. Nothing has happened. The dogs have been absolutely fine, but they do chase. Before, I've always felt there's a unspoken rule that if you have an aggressive dog, it'll be behind a fence. And if it's a placid dog, it can be roaming around. Well, this isn't true in Romania. Dogs chase you, or they've certainly been chasing me. None of them have done anything. I think I'm just good sport, as far as they're concerned. But it, you know... Makes it slightly less relaxing cycling along, particularly through villages, you're kind of more on edge. One other interesting thing passing through the villages has been noticing there's a very large number of young people, particularly young men in the villages, which is not something I've expected in many, I'd say, Western European countries. Villages tend to be more the preserve of a more elderly demographic. Whereas, from what I've seen, by no means exclusively, but there are a lot more young people in the villages I pass through in Romania, which has given them a slightly different feel. It's one, I'm still trying to work out, but I certainly haven't felt quite as comfortable in Romania so far. Though, I should really counterbalance that with whenever I wave to people and I say salud, there is this amazing beam of a smile that breaks on Basically, everyone's face and they wave and they say salute, salute, and la revedere which is goodbye. And so, there has been a very striking warmth to all the Romanians that I've passed. So, I'm still making my mind up about the country, and I'm going to continue to do so for the rest of the amount of time that I am here. So, that is this week's update from On The Road. I hope you enjoyed it. And now it is time for this week's conversation with quite an incredible guy, John Sloan. This week, I'm really excited to be joined by John Sloan. Now, John, in your life, you've already had to come face-to-face with a series of different challenges, and I think including cancer, but we go actually, the biggest challenge was something else. And that, to me, already sort of takes this conversation to a different level because so often in our society, you can't trump the C word. And actually, I think what we're going to be talking about today is going to delve into some other issues and really display that different challenges are different and not greater or, or lesser. You've had to deal with a lot in your you know, 33 years, and you're now just about to start working for Black Box in Belfast. Yeah. But I think we'll now just sort of jump to the chase. And first of all, John, thank you so much for joining on the Facing Up podcast.
1: You're very welcome. It's a pleasure to join you today, Luke.
0: So back in 2012, we're diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma, that yep. must have been a pretty big shock at the time.
1: Yeah, it was. It's a funny thing, isn't it? Like, I get asked that question mm. a lot over the years. And, and I guess everyone leads the same way. It must have been a shock. I think if we answered that with no, <laughs> <laughs> I think we would think we're a bit strange. But yeah, I mean, absolutely, my goodness. Um, at the time, I was 24, so graduated the year prior. To the diagnosis. So I guess like everybody at that age, the big wide world was kind of the oyster to term a phrase and, and to have a cancer diagnosis sort of slap on you at that point in time, it, it, it blindsides you. I mean, there's no other way of saying it really. For, you know, it, It's a total shock. It's such a lot to process at that age, I think, you know, and I think that's how I see it, you know, reflecting back at that time. is, is I always say that in keeping in mind that people get diagnosed with cancers at all ages and everything's relative and everything else. So it's never going to be a nice conversation. But certainly, I think the point that I'm making is that it's not something that you think about when you're in your early 20s. You know, it's something we always associate, I guess, with being older. So, uh, yeah, it it was world shattering as well. You know, not to use those words because it it really was.
0: I think uh, I don't know about you, but I found that. I had lots of very reasonable expectations, like I was going to get a, a good job and, you know, find, you know, get married and have children, these things. And I was perfectly justified in all of this. And for me, it felt like that was stripped away.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt. We, and we all have those. I mean, we, we all grow up kind of, you know, with our peers and the, and our family and those that we look up to. And we think that our lives will follow exactly that same path you see all of our friends and they're you know they're especially when we've grown up with them gone to school together gone to university together we just expect that it's just going to follow that simple linear path that everybody does yeah so to have to have that thrown in the mix you've already related to that it's just not expected at all in any shape or form and um, it just it destroyed my kind of hopes in that moment because i wasn't sure whether or not i would fulfill those you know plans i suppose
0: and as a consequence of being diagnosed, what for you was the biggest challenge? It's a good question. Do you know, I think initially the biggest challenge to all of
1: that was trying to come to terms and understand what the diagnosis meant. Because I think all I heard at the time was cancer. Cancer means death. I mean, I'll just say the word. I mean, that's literally, I mean, there's no other way mm. of putting it. So the challenge then became, well, I think I need to learn and understand precisely what has happened here. You know, what is going on? You know, what's the prognosis look like? And how do I move forward regardless of what's said? You know, and I, I don't know about you, Luke, but for me, from the time that I initially had a suspicion something was wrong until the point where I guess I knew or mm-hmm. I was about to start chemo, I guess, the week after, you know, until I got to that point, was probably for me anywhere between sort of eight to 10 weeks, I think from memory, you know, that was the period of time from when I thought something wasn't quite right to figuring out what my plan of action was. Mm -hmm. And those eight to 10 weeks were incredibly stressful and incredibly challenging because a lot of the time was spent not really knowing what was Mm -hmm. going on. And when you don't know what's going on, our human emotion is fear Mm -hmm. because we fear that unknown. And I think, um, that was that initial immediate challenge for me was just getting through until I put the pieces together to know what was happening. Yes,
0: and maybe there was almost a a relief that came with that certainty of like, okay, at least we now know what this is. Let's try and do something about it.
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely no doubt. I like a plan. (laughs) I like it laid out in front of me. I like to kind of have a, it doesn't have any specific, but I didn't kind of have an idea where I'm going. And yeah, as soon as I kind of knew, right, Prognosis was very optimistic. They felt that we got it early enough. They knew that there was a six-month course of chemotherapy that we needed to complete in its full, potential radiotherapy. They knew, so all of these things then started clicking mm-hmm. into place. They said, we're going to start it on this date, which meant that I then had a rough idea when the end date was if mm-hmm. it was six months. So all of this for me then made it a little bit more of a, okay, challenge accepted. Now I am going to hit mm-hmm. this with everything I've got uh, and hopefully beat it and, and, and I mean that's literally how my mind went then mm-hmm. it was a case of fight time I'd been through the emotional part you know in those eight to ten weeks you had done right. the crying done the real kind of like oh my god pff, shock you know all mm-hmm. of that i had been done and I guess by the time I was starting treatment it was like game face on
0: right so you had this period of the eight to ten weeks of great uncertainty and as you're saying if you can't even this is one of the things i kind of through doing this podcast and sort of reflecting my own life i've realized some of the most difficult times when i either didn't realize there was a challenge or i couldn't actually pinpoint what the challenge was and Mm. it can really help to define it and it doesn't it's not as simple as going oh now I see it's yes. Yeah. great. <laughs> <laughs> hindsight tends to be that, that's how you get that sort mm. of
1: feeling though, Luke. It's, it's the fact mm. that you can reflect back on something, and go, oh yeah, uh, funny that. Just yeah. like how people always go, oh, you must have known you were sick. I was like, well, no, I only mm. know that I was sick on hindsight because at the time, you know, I didn't really suspect there was anything going wrong. I don't know about you, Luke, but I don't know whether that was something similar in your experience, but certainly for me, it was, it was very much that.
0: Yeah I mean I spent about best part of six months with this ache in my shoulder which I just Mm. thought was an ache and doing a lot of sport, I just put it down as a niggle very successfully I convinced myself you know it was a winged scapula and so I caught it very it was caught very 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 late on yeah and then for that time it was just an unexplained thing that was a sort of minor inconvenience. Yeah exactly
1: but it's all relative and in the moment and, and that's the kind of thing that you were yeah. young as well, Luke, remember? I always remind myself yeah. of that. We were young. The last thing that we were thinking in our minds was yeah. cancer.
0: But of course. It just just doesn't come up. And so you were saying you got your game face on. Tell us how you dealt with some of these more unpleasant parts of being treated for cancer. This is something that I think a lot of people can relate to, either from personal experience or from knowing someone who's gone through cancer. There's some pretty mm. tough effects from chemotherapy, from radiotherapy, there's surgery sometimes, you know, as well. I think it can be a very difficult time for people to know how best to deal with it. Can you tell us how you dealt with these experiences? Yeah,
1: absolutely. I think first and foremost, I realized that I was going to probably be an outpatient for most of my treatment. So I knew that I could go in on a day and I would be able to come home in the evening if everything went well. Pretty much that was the course of action throughout treatment for me. It was every two weeks. It was a whole day for me. Uh, chemo so I would go in on a Friday morning I would have my bloods taken they would just be checked to ensure that I was healthy and fit enough to obviously go through chemo mm-hmm. uh, I'd have to wait until the afternoon so it was a fairly hefty wait a few hours wait between getting bloods and, and getting chemo uh, and the chemo would take three and a half hours I guess mm-hmm. three and a half hours it was a private room job I was really really sick when I got chemo so I had to kind of be kept away from everybody else because it's just would not have been pleasant sitting beside me you mean you were
0: actually growing done. up
1: Oh yeah, I, so I suffered from anticipatory nausea. Apparently, again, this is after the fact, but I learned very, very uh, late on that very common side effect to that type of treatment because of the aggressiveness of it. So I learned that it does cause in, in some people anticipatory nausea, and that's essentially what was happening. So you know, you're I was throwing going, up
0: before you even have the chemo. Precisely,
1: yeah. So if I think it, if I look if at the first, the first treatment went in a Friday, as I said, game face on. Absolutely no issues there. So I actually had no anxiety. I Had anxiety, but it was mm-hmm. controllable. You know, I was nervous. My goodness, I'm about to put chemotherapy in my body. I have no idea what this is going to be like. And it was frightening, um, mm-hmm. but it was controllable. Then the second treatment came, and I realized that I got the win. So I had two weeks off. First week, really sick. Second week, sort of bounced back, started to feel a bit better. And then on the Wednesday, Thursday of the Friday prior to the next treatment, that's when I realized this anxiety is not very good. And it turns out my anxiety manifests itself in an incredibly sick and nauseous feeling. So that would start then pretty violently on the Thursday night. Wouldn't be throwing up at that point, but would feel pretty gnarly despite the fact I'd been feeling well all week. Yeah, by the time I arrived, literally arrived at hospital, um, that was me in in sick mode. I would spend pretty much that entire day before treatment, incredibly stressed, incredibly sick feeling. Before I even had chemo, I mean, literally, I was just Mm. sitting, waiting. Mm. It was anticipation of getting it. And then whenever they started putting it in, I can actually feel sick now sitting, actually thinking about that. That's how vivid those memories are of that time, you know. very Um,
0: striking that you're feeling incredibly ill before you go in, before anything's entered your body. Yeah,
1: isn't it incredible? I never would have thought of it that way. Certainly, I just assumed that the chemo was what made you sick. Turns out my mind was making me sick, actually, before I even had it, you know, because it was expecting it to come. Yeah. Interesting.
0: And that's something, I mean, when I was going through chemo, I was, as I think a lot of people know, really trying to do as much exercise as possible as a way of sort of, Mm -hmm. and I was in hospital for for four days, three days of feeling sick, and then I'd have two weeks when I was kind of fairly normal. And I would be, I guess it's interesting talking to you now, because I didn't really think about that time when I'd be back in hospital. I was just sort of focused on the here and now, just like enjoying bizarre situation I found myself so I'm kind of interested was exercise something that helped you
1: yeah it was at the time so I have a cycling background I I cycled for Ulster when I was a junior and I continued to ride my bike albeit not as competitively in the early 20s so I initially started Rewinding back a touch, i just run Belfast Marathon back in May. This was literally a few weeks prior to being diagnosed with Hodges' lymphoma. So I guess I tried to continue running initially. Mm. Over time, that just became a lot more difficult to do. So then I transitioned into cycling on an indoor trainer. And I maintained that for most of the way through it. I was sick over the winter months, so it was incredibly difficult to kind of get out. Particularly when my immune system was a bit shocked with the chemo, Mm -hmm. uh, to get outside on the bike, I was always conscious, didn't want to make myself sick Mm. just by getting out into the cold. So indoor was kind of the way that I approached it and outdoor was generally long walks. I wasn't working during the time, so I had plenty of time to kind of get out into the fresh air. I kept busy with projects though, fitness and, and trying to stay healthy in that respect was one aspect of it. But outside of that, I kind of learned how to cook better. And at one point I made a table. I was so random, like silly things that you hey, I'm going to learn how to make a table because got loads of time. <laughs> yeah,
0: but I mean, you, you <laughs> say it's a silly thing, but I think it's actually fantastic. And it's one of the things that I know aside from exercise and focusing on my diet that helped me most of all through my treatment was having other stuff to be getting into. You know, you've got these projects that take your mind away from treatment and that's coming up, they give you an alternate focus, but then they also give you an alternate identity. And I think this period where you're being treated, you can often, I guess it didn't happen too much for me because I was doing a lot of other stuff, but you can end up being defined as a patient as someone yes. with cancer and yeah. I was very fortunate to do a master's during the time of my treatment and that for oh, me wow. Brilliant. everyone was very conscientious but it forced me to be a completely different person behave in a certain way you know and I was expected to write essays and whatnot and although it was a bit burdensome at the time it was actually fantastic yeah. to have these alternate focuses.
1: Yeah, I I totally relate to that. I think it's fantastic that you had that to do, and and you're absolutely right. It it just normalized. That's the like, word I like nice to use for normalized mm-hmm. life, didn't it? It gave you that focus on something that was normal. We can define normal, I guess, <laughs> in a lot of ways. But do you know what I mean? Yeah, it, it, yeah. it it just kind of makes things feel like yeah, you're not a cancer patient. You're you're not this sick person all the time. Because I always think about that a lot. Yeah, we were sick, but in between treatments, we were. Walking around like every other, everybody else, you know.
0: <laughs> yes. For the most
1: part, It was just that we went through phases where we just felt pretty pretty unwell. Yeah. So I get yeah. that.
0: I know it varies from chemo regime to chemo regime, but there often are opportunities for being a lot more mobile and with a bit more energy, where you can mm-hmm. pursue these other passions. And to me, this is like something that I feel so strongly about that it's great to get stuck into those. You'll be the person who benefits. Yeah. Definitely. So- so was there anything that helped you most of all get through your chemo yeah my wife
1: laura and my mom they were there through every treatment i've got two sisters as well two younger sisters but get them away from the hospitals during it i think it was a bit hard enough just with my wife and, and my mom seeing me go through it they were there the whole way thank goodness <laughs> they absolute heroes it, you know to watch my mom to watch her son go through that i can only imagine i'm not a father myself so i don't know what those emotions would be like but yeah, to be there and, to, you know, essentially hold your hand. Laura, the same. And we've been together, I guess, five five years by the time I've been diagnosed. So we've been together a while. I'm sure it was as mm. much of a shock to go through. Just different experiences, isn't it? They're watching it helplessly, hoping that they can be the support. And that's exactly what they were. They were there beside mm. me. So I wasn't doing it on my own. And yet the nurses who were perf- acting on a professional capacity to actually mm. make you comfortable. And that was, that's all they could do. You know, like that was the reality. I mean, mm. it was, it. you know, I always like I was the one that was kind of, Dealing with the chemo, the physical and mental aspects of doing that, but they were the ones there that making sure that I was comfortable and keep me strong.
0: When you're in the midst of going through chemotherapy, you kind of have the blinkers down. You like, I need to get through this. And although you had other people supporting them, I mm. certainly didn't have the mental capacity really to give much thought to how they were dealing with the sight of mm. a loved person <laughs> going through yeah. this. I was wondering. Was there a time when you kind of had these difficult conversations with Laura and your mum, like after treatment, of actually sort of bridging that gap of the two experiences that you had and there's this incredible outpouring of love for you, which at that time Mm you are not able to reciprocate. And I wonder if some people listening to this could feel guilty about that. What's your perspective on this?
1: Probably no different to anybody else in that respect, Luke, if I'm honest. There's no way that I was able to compute that at the time. Those thoughts are very much, you know, again... Hindsight, reflectiveness, you know, yeah. after the fact. So I think I've been there and felt guilty about it before because it was selfish. I mean, I, I guess I had a right to be selfish. I raised my eyebrows for you know, those who couldn't see. <laughs> yeah. It's selfish as I think you have to be yeah there's no other way of putting it and look if your loved ones are there rest assured they will understand that that's the case you know they really will if they love you they will understand that doesn't necessarily take away the emotions that we feel about that guilt because mm. there were times when emotionally i was just totally unstable and there were definitely days where dark days when um i was pretty sure that there wasn't much time left i say that i was so angry at myself you know now because i had no reason to really think that at the time that's the truth i mean i didn't really i mean. Darren Brown, a few years ago, did a nice thing about how we create a problem and it looks absolutely humongous, like a giant feed liver problem. Mm -hmm. And actually, Mm -hmm. we reflect on it just a little bit. That problem could be shrunk down to the size of a mobile phone. I'm actually making the size of a mobile phone with my (laughs) hand. And I think I was unable to do that at the time. All my problems were just massive.
0: It's very difficult to get that perspective when you're in the midst of something.
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely.
0: But I think it's what you're saying those people who love you will love you regardless if you're being selfish selfish and in inverted commas now doing that yes i think this is turning into very much a charade episode so apologies sure everyone is. listening you can't see all these fantastic hand gestures coming out they're very good but no on, on a serious point though i think it's so important to prioritize your own health as far as you can when you're going through that challenge and hopefully there will be that time to reciprocate and well if there's not then no one's going to hold it against you for just trying to kind of get through that completely agree with you there um, absolutely so john you went through your chemotherapy you came out the other side and then you kind of put your foot on the accelerator do you want to tell us oh, about yes. that take us through your kind of post chemo life
1: well post chemo i i won that challenge right that's kind of what i thought i thought well got the game face on and it was pretty horrible and like, i'm not I always make it so like it was easy, but I think whenever we can explain where things go from here, I'll understand what, what I mean by that. But it, I've gone through a very, very difficult six months, both physically and mentally. And I kind of got to the end of it. I, I was just, it was like celebration time. Then my thoughts went to, okay, that's done. Over, there's no active cancer in my body anymore. Let's get everything running again. So, you know, being over together for you know six years at this point, and I thought, hey, where would I be without cancer? And I thought, well, I'd probably be looking to propose and get a house and do all those lovely things that, that you're supposed to do. And that's exactly what I pushed accelerator Pedal on doing. And it was brilliant. So 2013, beginning of that year was when I got the all clear. And at the end of the la- September of 2013, then we decided to go to Las Vegas for a holiday. We always wanted to see the Grand Canyon. And we'd always talked about it for years. You know, one of the, one of the seminars of the world. And I planned then, this is where I'm going to pop the question. And oh, wow. That's exactly what I did. Of that's exactly locations. what I did. That's, that's Gua- Guano, Guano Point, the Grand Canyon. I'd actually planned to do it on top of this rock formation which had a 360 degree span view of, of the canyon which would have been amazing until I arrived and realised there was about 50 Americans standing <laughs> on it and if I'd, have, if I'd have proposed to Laura there it would have been not well received <laughs> with everybody applauding so it chose a nice quiet spot overlooking uh, I actually can't remember the name it's terrible I can't remember the name of the point but uh, the way that the canyons meet it actually makes it look like an eagle even from photos it's hard to see yeah. but um, it's just the way they meet and, that, and that's exactly where where we and I just asked and Leisha Laura said no way uh, really? which was a shock oh, which was a sense? shock but it was a reaction of no way as in no way
0: <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it was quite okay. funny so um, it turned to yes uh, it turned to you, yes, instantly, instantly, <laughs> clarification. Was there a moment yeah. where you had like your stomach just like going, oh my God, I've, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've really like, misread yeah. the situation here.
1: Oh no, <laughs> totally. But it worked out well in the end, you know, and yeah, so that, that's what we did. So my brother-in-law, Laura's brother was out with us, my, my best friend from university was with us. So I think that's why it was unexpected because we went on like a group holiday. I don't think she mm-hmm. had expected it. We celebrated. So we came home. I made plans then for the wedding the following year, looking at houses and all of that. So, sorry, that would have been 2015. We'd made plans for all of that. So, it was a year and a half or or more away. I spent all of 2014 and the 15 really planning Mm -hmm. weddings, trying to find a house, save, you know, stressful things of saving and everything else that went wrong to get a house, all all while working. You know, I'd move jobs to work in the motor trade to sell cars, which is a fairly busy and and stressful job in itself. Mm
0: So I find this bit, I just want to pause here a little bit and explore because I find your attitude fascinating because it's very different. I haven't received, I don't think I'm ever going to receive like an all clear, but I sort of got through my treatment and out the other side and I was like, right, time to just, you know, cavort around the world if I possibly can. And I find it really interesting that you were like, actually, you know, what's really important is to marry this amazing woman and to yeah. get a house and to sort of settle down and to work yeah. in a, what I see as a nine to five. Like why would John be doing this if he's just had a close brush with death? Where's the meaning of life in this? I'm I'm being provocative here. So give us yeah and I think I think that's fine I don't think
1: I'd ever... People always ask, that I get an epiphany after getting sick? And the truth of the matter is, I never did. I never had that epiphany or that I got to live my life differently. To me, I guess I was always brought up that get a good job, you try to be happy with that. I'll make no you know, mistakes. The fact about like, you know, I'd done investment finance at university and I kind of always wanted to work in that kind of environment. was kind of what I always wanted to do. And yeah, I guess when I finished treatment, that didn't change. It was more of a... I saw cancer as a bit of a hindrance. It got in the way of me wanting to do that anyway i almost like hey do one i'm getting things back on the road here you know and i think that's pretty much why i went down that road it's just because i never had that light bulb moment of let's do it differently at that time anyway you know it just right. never occurred to me
0: now um, you've got these plans to marry the woman of your dreams that's all happening mm-hmm. you're, ha- you're getting a house together you've had this sideways this curveball pretty curve wrecking ball let's call it of cancer you've Picked yourself know. Yep. put yourself back on the road. Things seem to be going really well. Can you take us through the next challenge? Because it yeah. seems like you're just about to smash life and carry on accelerating.
1: Oh, if only, look, if only. Yeah, so this next phase, I guess, it, this maybe explains why sometimes I make it sound like the cancer treatment was, was easier. And it's purely from the perspective. I had a to-do list and I completed that to-do list. So I was busy, my mind was focused. I was feeling healthier, I guess. you know, This is now the 2015, the wedding was in June. So that had all been done. We'd already moved into the house and we were due to go on our honeymoon in July. So I was kind of in this in-between, between the wedding at the beginning of June and honeymoon at the end of July. Gone back to work for just a couple of weeks in the, in the interim period. So I had nothing really else to focus on. It was like, you know, yourself, like you've had like a busy week or a busy whatever and you just get to the end of that week and you go... <gasps> oh, thank goodness, you know, oh, just sit here and just relax, watch TV. No purpose today, nothing planned. Today is a, let's see what happens kind of day. I went from a, I have everything planned for like the next year and a half to I don't really have any plans, I'm literally going on my honeymoon in July and after that, let's see what happens. So I was sitting at work one day and uh, long story short, on lunch, I had what I didn't realise now. I had my first full blown panic attack. So to describe... What that felt like, just for lunch, it felt a bit queasy, a bit off. I wasn't feeling Mm -hmm. overly great. So I thought, hey, go get some lunch. might feel a bit better. haven't eaten movies since this morning. But that feeling didn't really go away. It just got more and more powerful. Heart rate then started spiking. It got really, really hot, like really clammy, feverish feeling. Really sick at this point. Heart rate just continued to race, and it's just getting really scary at this point. Then I had this. Anyone who's experienced, anyone listening who's experienced a panic attack, will understand this feeling. It's really, I find it really hard to describe it, but it's this wave of like the lights going out. It's like this wave that comes over your mind. It's um, oh, I don't
0: even know. I, I literally words. Vision. Words. You can still, yeah, still see. What's in yeah, yeah.
1: Still see. Still see. It's almost like you're about to black out. It's a very, very powerful feeling and sensation. I have never blacked out, despite the numerous amount of panic attacks I have mm-hmm. had over the years. This has never happened, and I know why. Scientifically, generally your blood pressure is high, which actually makes passing out very difficult, physiologically <laughs> okay. anyway.
0: yeah.
1: So that was it. at that point, then, I thought I was having a heart attack, and that is the truth. That was the start of, really, the next battle, wait, and that was the mental health and depression. Wait, so, so right
0: this... Around. Just to sort of take it back or put it in context, one day you go to work, as you usually go to work, Mm -hmm. and actually at some point that day in your 20s, you think you're having a heart attack, Mm -hmm. and that's pretty extreme.
1: Uh, There's something I was told during treatment, I think. This is is me realising this probably a good year after this first panic attack episode as to where the... And this was me working through with counsellors and trying to figure out the trigger point. Why would I have thought that that was what was happening? I remember being told at the beginning of ABV treatment that one of the drugs, can't remember which one now, can cause heart problems. But I do think that that one piece of information stuck. I absorb information like that. You know, I was learning about the treatment. So, more so that I know how to maybe prevent these things from being a problem in later life. But I think that that one thing stuck in my mind. All these sensations came over me, and I thought, oh no, I'm damaged. And I had a Pickline injury in during treatment, I don't know whether you did look, but I had a Pickline that basically sends the chemo directly into the heart.
0: Yeah. I mean, you so know, tube that goes these... directly into your vein, you know, so around Correct. about your elbow, and it, it just goes right up the vein all the way and just deposits the treatment just into your heart. So,
1: yeah. I mean, you can already see how I'm starting to think the heart problem. Maybe they back, left something back. in there. <laughs> oh, yeah. And this was the start of hypersensitivity towards. Mm-hmm. Like health anxiety, really, really, really severe health anxiety, mm-hmm. whereby subsequent months I was convinced that I was not very well. I was having mul- multiple panic attacks, that didn't know they were panic attacks at the time. I went on, turned me on initially, tried to slow the heart rate down because I thought my heart rate was always high, but then they, d- they just made me feel sluggish, didn't like mm-hmm. those at all. And then eventually, I was out of work then. I couldn't physically get out of the house. Because I couldn't even walk to the end of my street with the dogs. You know, I was terrified, terrified that I was going to leave the house and then something really bad was going to happen to me.
0: So when you're Constantly saying you couldn't leave it. the house and walk the dogs, was it that you were, so physically had wasted away? Or was it that <sighs> no. you were just you were worried you were going to pass out or something at the end of the road? Yeah.
1: Physically, look, I was fine. Physically, there's nothing wrong with me. But I felt sick. I mean, remember talking about the anticipatory nausea during chemo? Mm-hmm. I felt like that again. Sick all the time again. I, and that was my adrenaline anxiety level button had been pushed and got stuck on. You had your normal levels of anxiety, which mm-hmm. most people experience day to day, up and down. Mm-hmm. My button got stuck on. So, And I'm, I'm, I'm using a hand gesture again, back to Shraz, where I'm like throwing my hand way above my head because yeah, they were the that other. heightened. Yeah, and as a consequence of that, I just had that really on you—that know, really uneasy feeling you get when you're a wee bit nervous and you're a bit mm-hmm. anxious. I had that stuck on all the time. So the, even leaving the house became a scary prospect, and the home was a safe place. It was the only place that I could feel a little bit of relief from that. And as soon as I tried to meet friends, go out, just no chance. Just became a real struggle. So. I ended up having to go on to antidepressants in order to try and curb that anxiety level to bring a level that right. I could then function and thereby then led pretty much in the next couple of years where I was just on them. Seeked out eventually, I had to do it on my own because I didn't have any support. It's, you know mm. There wasn't like there was nobody there checking on me after treatment. You know, it was this is all family. Mm. And in the end, I just went private to find a counselor that I could talk to. And it just turned out that I hadn't really dealt with the illness and that was the truth of the matter but the damage had already been done and you don't when you're when, when you have a mental breakdown like that like a ptsd type breakdown like that mm. you don't fix yourself overnight yeah as much as i wanted to and it takes time unfortunately and you have five years now after that first episode and i can safely say that it's only been in the last two years mm. that i have got off the medication properly and started to thrive in my life again. And arguably the last 12 to 18 months where I actually feel like things are normalizing again for so me.
0: It's been a process you of know. years that's kind of got you. Yeah. To more and, and, more this more is, point.
1: and this is know. why I say that the mental health and the depression that came with it, the feelings of like life wasn't ne- I just thought that I was never going to be the normal John again, almost like I was mourning, mm. you know, pre-cancer John. And that's the so way anyway I can describe it because I did not feel like me anymore. You
0: got through the cancer. And yet, a a little bit after that, it wasn't the cancer that had made you lose your previous self. It was actually this anxiety and depression. And during this period, was it this kind of hyper focus? Oh, do I have a pain in my arm? Oh, maybe I have a pain in my arm. Oh, I definitely do have a pain in my arm. Oh my God, my arm is falling off. Was it that sort of thing? I'm being, you know, it's, it's quite a trite example. But... I mean, not far off it, Luke. I mean, it would be a niggle. I don't think it went as far as
1: trying to diagnose what was wrong with me. It was, I felt the pain and then I had a, my brain went adrenaline, pump it in. And then I would just spark it. It wasn't even like I had a specific answer or even thought about what was wrong. It was literally, my brain just went, every time just seemed to go heart attack. It's just bizarre. you get a niggle in my arm, a niggle in my hand, a niggle in my chest, you know, wherever, a niggle in my neck. Particularly mm. sites maybe where my cancer was, maybe, neck, chest, arm was probably more associated with the fact that, you know, heart attack, but it could be that. And it was just, as soon as I felt it, wave of adrenaline, that head mm. feeling again where I feel I was going to pass out, it all came again. And I just, that was the cycle. Over time, I started to recognize what it was, you know, and sort of accepting what it was. Mm -hmm. When you're in a full-blown panic attack, the worst thing that you can do, and this is hopefully useful to people listening to this, is to try and control it. Mm -hmm. Because the more you try and control that panic attack, the worse it's going to get. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know that. And so I kept fighting them and I just ended up stuck in these constant, I mean, these could go on for hours and then it would leave you so exhausted. I don't know whether you've ever been in a situation where you've been really high anxiety, but you're exhausted. An interview, you know, something that you've had to go in and prepare for and it's been really, really quite taxing. You're only in there for an hour, but you're quite, and you're absolutely yeah. done in, you know? yeah, That's what it's like. So now I was just in this cycle of like, dealing with it, exhaustion. Dealing and with it, exhaustion.
0: Each time the panic attack came on, were you worried that it was a heart attack? Because to ask the stupid question, after a few times and you hadn't had the heart attack you didn't sort of somehow then go oh it's this but it is not your heart attack I I know it's not that simple but it's the sort of what one thinks yeah
1: consciously yeah I mean I knew that it wouldn't be but it didn't stop them from happening and that was the thing you know, consciously if you were talking to me at the time I'd have told you there was nothing wrong with me but they didn't stop the attacks coming and the periods of anxiety even to this day I still get periods of anxiety I mean you know I think looking back at Kate you know i Obviously, anticipatory anticipating nausea for chemo. So it's probably just a character trait of mine that I do have mm-hmm. high anxiety at times, you know? But the problem was that the button got stuck on and I needed to find a way of getting that mm-hmm. button to switch off to go back to normal levels, you know? One of the biggest mistakes we make going through that is that we think we should turn anxiety off, but that's not right because we're human beings and we have it for a reason. It's a natural instinct that we're born mm-hmm. with. It's just that people go through that have a heightened state and we have to train our brains to understand that there's no lions there to eat us. You know, it's, it's, it's an old, mm. you know, ancient little piece of our brain that thinks we're about to be eaten and then yeah. we need to either fight or we need to run away. Yeah. And It is broken and we just need to learn how to. And I mean, I'm not meta-qualified or anything. This is just only from personal experience and understanding yes. myself and what I've been told by professionals and by counselors that that's what's happening.
0: I want to talk more about actually how you built up your ability to cope with these panic attacks and overcome this challenge. However, in this moment, when it's pretty severe, you've recently married Laura, who Mm -hmm. supported you through chemo, knew the old John, chemotherapy cancer is a very understandable reason that you're not gonna be quite yourself. You're just settling into like married life. And all of a sudden I could imagine the John that she knew had kind of begun to slip away from her. That yeah. must've been incredibly difficult for Laura and incredibly difficult for you as well yeah. in different ways.
1: Yeah. And I mean, obviously I can't speak directly for her and this is all just coming from our conversations that we've had over the years, but I can't really imagine how she must've felt truly at that, in that moment, because I didn't understand what was happening. So Laura didn't understand either. We both were completely in the dark. Laura just thought, yeah, you're right. I mean, I think you put it quite well. Like, I wasn't me anymore. You know, I I, you know, I was this young, confident guy who would have just organized, done things. And, and I just didn't do anything anymore. You know, I didn't want to go out anywhere. I didn't want to socialize because it was too scary. Even at the time, I was feeling it, the guilt that was just so much, you know, and I was kind of aware of that. The problem was I couldn't, as much as I wanted to fix me, I couldn't. And that was incredibly frustrating because... I would have obviously, in a heartbeat, fixed myself. <laughs> I didn't want to feel like this, you know. I was like, it was just incredibly difficult and uh, challenging. And yeah, it's interesting that we managed to get through that. I think it's a testament to maybe our characters in terms of, you know, the love we have for each other, certainly. And and the will and the want, I think that's really important as well. The fact that we wanted to get through it together, you know, I think. Look, it was up and down. It was incredibly difficult. I was mm. doubt about that.
0: Was there anything that Laura did knowingly or not that helped you at that point and actually also vice versa, were there some things that occasionally that you did that sort of gave restored some hope that the the old John might come back?
1: Were Laura was the major instigator to me seeking professional help mm-hmm. you know, for the psychological hurt between her and my mom, I guess. I was really anti it for a while. I don't know why. I think I was convinced it was the doctors that needed to look after because it was physical. And then I realized that it wasn't a physical problem, it was actually a mental problem. That took me a few months mm. to understand. And it was there where they very much instigated for me seeking that professional help. So without that, for sure, um, I wouldn't have gotten to understand what was happening in order to mm. through what they call cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, incredibly mm. powerful, incredibly useful psychological tool to deal with these types of things very much on the stoic level combined with modern psychological techniques. So it's an amazing tool. It actually introduced me to meditation, and that's kind of the start of how I began to improve. There were some times when I felt pretty normal, like in the house and stuff. Like It wasn't like I was just always in the corner rocking back and forth. although I was like that a couple of times. But uh, those moments probably were enough to realize, well, actually, we just need to kind of get a normal, a normal level long term as opposed to just being... And over time, the the gaps between the episodes and the high anxiety became greater. So it was Mm -hmm. more days where I felt better. But that was time. And that's the key thing in this, is that we began to understand that it was going to take time. The medication leveled me, Luke, so I became able to think clearly
0: so that did make could, an immediate difference. That just sort of yeah,
1: out. it it may help me think clearly. I didn't have very many ups and downs though, which was very frustrating. So I didn't get super excited about anything, and I didn't really get super low about anything. I just kind of was like, <laughs> you know, like things that used to really make me excited. Mm-hmm. I just like I like doing that. Oh, that's kind of how I felt about it, you know. Whereas mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I used to get really excited about that. You know, so I didn't like that part of it, but it allowed me to think straight and allow me the space I needed to figure things out. Laura's great at that. Laura's really, Laura's got a great ability
0: mm-hmm.
1: to look at things positively and on a better scale than I mm-hmm. can at times. And I think that's why it's worked so well. Where I'm quite, ah, this is a really scary situation. Laura's very good at taking a step back. and mm-hmm. like, no, oh, it's not that bad. You know, <laughs> <A>
0: I <bit> look <laughs> <With> differently. Where's <laughs> the... A- Cognitive behavioral therapy, you said you got sort of meditation from that. But I was wondering if you could take us a bit more through how that actually helped you pick up, retrain your mind, retrain what you took from that and where it's left you now.
1: For me, it slows the world down. So whenever my anxiety levels were very high, my mind was just fast forward. You know, everything was coming at me very quickly and it can become very overwhelming. Mm. So the meditation side allowed me to learn how to breathe. And that focus on the breath, that ability to just sit in the moment with my thoughts and observe them without judgment. Now, that sounds very easy, but it takes practice. And that's I'm still practicing meditation today. You know, some days have good days and bad days, but that's the joy of meditation. And what it allowed me to do over time was when I'm having a bad moment, three or five minutes, stop, breathe, because that slow breath of in and out, I try and not to. It allowed me to listen to my body. So, for example, that niggle, where my body would have reacted really, really negatively. Mm -hmm. I was able to go, breathe, focus on that niggle. Where is it coming from? And then I would breathe through that anxiety. So it slowed everything down and gave me the opportunity to actually listen to what was really going on. Mm -hmm. Initially, that was very difficult to do. But over time and the more practice I got at it, the more that I began to recognize the trigger points for what was going to send me into a full-blown panic attack to the point now, even though, I mean, i get the odd one now, but it's generally high stress environments cause them or if you haven't drunk enough water or something, you know, but generally speaking, I haven't had a full-blown panic attack in a long time. And it's Mm. because I'll now know this triggers and signs won't come in. Breath, 30 seconds, and then I just move on. And that's taken a long time to get to that point. It allows you to, to observe your thought patterns without judging them which means that you don't attach emotion to them, which therefore means your body isn't going to react with heightened anxiety or depression.
0: Yeah. It's, it's interesting. In some ways, it's not quite the same spheres in panic attacks, but one of the sort of techniques I found very useful is just acknowledging how you feel. It sounds like you're almost think, talking about it in a more physical sense, but this is sort of like rather than, you know, I had an interaction with someone, didn't go too well, either if you're know, nervous or you're worried or angry or something, and rather than just trying to yeah. think, no, 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 that wasn't, I shouldn't feel that, actually saying, wait, let's just sit with it and go and actually sort of acknowledge the emotion and, you know, the part of the technique is your hand where you feel that thing and you say, oh, you know, I feel that you're there. And then that already, it's amazing. It makes me feel better. It sounds all quite wishy-washy. Wouldn't have believed it, but you're like, oh, no, I'm, I am feeling angry and it's okay. I've recognized it. And then that allows you to then ask the question, okay, so why did that make me angry? And it makes it just, it's of depersonalize it, but also recognizing something that is there that then helps you acknowledge it. And then when you've acknowledged it, then you can do something about it in a much more constructive way than just trying to say, that didn't make me stressful. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And and you're absolutely right. I mean,
1: it's that kind of stoic reflection, isn't it, on a situation. And meditation for me allowed me to live in the moment, so the present. Mm. So, an interesting thing that I've learned over the years is that dogs are a really good example of why they're always happy for (laughs) the most part. And it's because as human beings, we have the ability to look at the past and we also have the ability to plan for the future. When we dwell on the past, that's depression. So when we think about the past and things we haven't done, we can get down and feel really low about it. When we look to the future and we're uncertain about that, uncertainty brings anxiety. So by living in the moment right now, we eliminate those two uh, mm. feelings. And I and, and I, I find that that really helped me sit now in the moment and be like, well, right now, I'm sitting in a pretty comfy house. I'm pretty lucky. Nothing's scary. Nothing's dangerous here. Even when I went out to restaurants and stuff, you know, it was like, not now, but at the time it was like, right, I know where the emergency exit is. I can get up and leave the table at any time. I'm feeling a little bit anxious. I can get up and walk out. Living in the moment and being aware of where I was, it helped me just relax. And that, that that's kind of how I kind of live, live mm. initially. The next aspect of it was was then getting my active lifestyle back, combining that as well.
0: So this is something that I guess there's two things here. I'm quite interested in how you kind of regained your life. One was mm-hmm. gaining this active lifestyle back. And I think that's something yeah. you, you were pretty active before, but then starting yeah. from scratch um, or from a much lower point. Yeah, I think that's something a lot of people can relate to or just having to kind of build up maybe from territory, you know, into territory they'd never been. Yeah. And there's another issue of you said you're on antidepressants. Ninety mm-hmm. percent of people you said don't ever get off them. Yeah, so Hopefully. I believe so the two that, big that, challenges and maybe they're interrelated. Yeah. I'm not sure. That that
1: yeah, like that stat actually came from Jordan Peterson recently from a podcast I'd listened to. That was a stat that he put out there, which which really shocked me, you know. Like, I can understand why haven't come off them. So yeah, physical activity so I unfortunately as a consequence of all of the panic attacks I was terrified to really get my heart rate up because every time I did I seemed to just go into full blown panic attacks and I really mm. was just feeling sick from it and when you feel sick you don't want to exercise I mean that's mm. just how it is you know so in 2017 I've been on antidepressants for two years at this point beginning of 2017 um, I was invited by Simon Darby who is an amazing person amazing social worker for click surgeon incredible incredible person and he has done crossfit for years and he was like hey I'm going to do a 12-week study as part of post grad where I want to see how the benefit or how the effects of exercise, in particular functional fitness, will improve the lives of cancer, young cancer survivors. I initially said no. (laughs) I was like, not (laughs) interested. There's no way I can do that. And that was the beginning of 2017. Simon's a very persistent person, thankfully. And uh, Mm -hmm. I eventually said yes. And in October of 17, I then joined the 12-week program. At this point, i made the decision like to come off the antidepressants. It's already started. I thought, hey, you know what? This is a positive change in my life. I've said yes to something which I normally would say no to. Let's now. I'd already started cycling my bike again, which was good. I kind of got back. out sort of commuting, so I was doing like an hour a day on the bike. But I wasn't loving it. It was like ugh, a real struggle because um, mm. I was feeling sick, and I was would come home and land on the sofa because I felt terrible after it. But so you really start... were
0: feeling sick from this exercise. Mm. It wasn't just a. Yeah, it was still quite visceral. These sensations.
1: Yeah yeah very much so started coming off the antidepressants then that was probably the reason why i said no initially to the program because i wasn't coming off antidepressants was so hard it really is uh, I, I worked through it continued working and probably should have took time off work if i'm honest
0: I'll ask are, a question that someone who's never had antidepressants what was really difficult about it
1: so obviously they change. Going on to them was difficult. So it changes the chemical makeup of your brain, essentially. So being on them for such a long period of time, it means that your brain is kind of almost like an addiction, I guess. Mm-hmm. It's kind of not addictive per se, but it, the brain treats it almost like that. So it's almost one thing. Them every day needs them every day. Mm-hmm. And if you just autom- if you just stop taking them completely, you have to wean off them. I mean, it sounds like an addiction, doesn't it? You would be horrendously ill. So I had started weaning off them, like gradually reducing them. I was on high dosage and reducing it down gradually over a period mm-hmm. of weeks. Every time I reduced that dose, I started getting these things like brain zaps. It was like an electric shock charge zapping in through the brain and all. Uh, really, really horrible things. Oh, um, wow. Literally, just wow. be sitting, and you would actually hear a crack and a flash in, in, in your brain. If you Google people coming off antidepressants, there's a very common side effect of coming wow. off them, apparently. I was told about it, kind of knew that it was coming, but it's really hard. Emotionally, I was all over the show. Uh, literally from deep really sad to like really really happy i mean i went from being leveled out to
0: just poof like a roller coaster of emotion your I'm, body was you know, readjusting yeah, and taking a whole and lot of dopamine weeks. in and just tripling <sighs> the normal dose and oh
1: wow honestly and, and it made you, makes you feel the anxiety gets really 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 high again like initially i mean and to the point where you're like i oh, you go back on them. it makes you think that this is what life's like off antidepressants of depressants when it's not this is just mm-hmm. your body reacting to coming off them so um oh thankfully i'm a fairly stubborn mule at times and i just persevered i made myself a commitment when i commit myself to something i'm generally pretty good at seeing it out for the most part so mm-hmm. i just stuck to my guns started the program across in october I'm nearly nearly off them i was down to like a 30 milligram dose in like five so it's like pretty much awful at this point still feeling gnarly but getting there and yeah i started exercising and initially it was hard i wasn't overly really consistent i did the 12-week program stuck to it and i, and I really enjoyed it so actually i really kind of was like oh this is interesting. This mm. is like, I really like this short, sharp high intensity workouts. Get in, get it done. And it was really fun. It was like an adult's playground, you know, all these different movements. And I was like, yeah, this is really good. Enjoy mm. this. So I finished the 12 week program and the move forward, which is what it was called. They got a, I think it was called uh, Fitness for Survivors in the beginning. It's now called Move Forward. Uh, Simon just continued it along for us. He's like, "Hey, you know what? It was initially twelve weeks, but let's just keep it running." And uh, we created a little community of these these young cancer survivors coming in, Mm. and it wasn't a place to talk about cancer, but it was a place where we could talk about fitness and talk about positivity and Mm. how we're getting fit and healthy again after treatment. And it was just amazing, and I absolutely loved it. And I got into, and that's it. Like I just kind of flew with it. Then I just find every day I went, I got more and more confident and realized my brain started accepting. Ah, yeah, I can do this. But like, I don't need to be, you know. And I was, I was putting the stress and anxiety with fitness in it, I started realizing that the more I exercised, the more that anxiety would go away. It just Mm. totally changed. And and the hip, of feel good, endorphins just totally overrode everything else that was going on. And that was Mm. just sort of realizing, oh, wow, this is so good. And I know now there's a train of thought that exercise is great for depression, Mm. you know, for anxieties and all of these things. Well, I'm a testament to that. It Mm. is absolutely incredible uh, to the point where, what, 2019 October 19 a year and a half or so after it started that program I got my level one CrossFit trainers course certificate and came on board then as a coach to help other young people it's been an incredible journey over five years one was really really tough but one that I'm super proud to be able to sit and say that I can hopefully be an inspiration to other people I always hate saying it because it makes it sound like it's egotistical but it's not at all I genuinely have a passion and love for the fact that I might be able to help someone else
0: because when we look at your story you had this cancer diagnosis you managed to get through that with the support of you know, particularly your mum, laura mm-hmm. and then you also have managed to pick yourself up through these these panic attacks and it seems like exercise it seemed to come in relatively late but it also seems like the effect it had was then quite profound
1: yeah without it i think i'd have been immediately back on the depressants at some point okay. i'm fairly sure of that because i when I'm having a particularly bad day, when I go and I do my thing in the gym or wherever it is, instant relief gone. Mm. You know, I, I leave that place feeling a million pounds. It's so good. Like, I mean, it really is. And it gives me something to look forward to in the day as well. I mean, I really, really enjoy it. My thing at the minute is CrossFit. That's what I love to do. I also love to get out on my bike. Nothing great, a greater than getting out in, you know, in the fresh air and cycle on my bike for a couple of hours. And that's what I enjoy. And I always say to other people, but Find something active that you love or enjoy. And it could be anything at all. I mean, for me, that's the two things that work for me. And that's why I coach the CrossFit. Because if young cancer survivors come into it, I've yet to find someone that doesn't benefit from it. Yeah. Physically and mentally. I mean, that's the truth. I haven't. It's just amazing, you know, watching these people come in unsure of themselves. never Maybe never worked out before at all. Weeks later, just smashing it, you know, and just smiles in their feet. well maybe not maybe not smiles and face during the workout Look, like, you know because Oftentimes. you're working hard but certainly <laughs> yeah. afterwards <laughs> yeah you know it's just, yeah. it's just an amazing thing
0: well this very much ties in with my own experience and the role that exercise plays in my life I know mm-hmm. that actually I am essentially addicted to endorphins which isn't the worst problem to have when they come <laughs> not at all from exercise but I would very much be a miserable bugger if I didn't exercise like any, you know, changes your brain's chemistry. I know I would do less, achieve less and also would have been much less able to deal with some of the challenges I've faced. So I think it's really cool the way that you've not only taken that on board yourself and then that made exercise once again, part of your lifestyle, but then also Mm -hmm. working to bring it to other people and particularly people who might feel less confident about starting exercise. And I really want to ask you at this point, it's all very well for me to say, you know, and I do say it, you know, exercise is this great thing. It helped me get through cancer treatment. You should all do it too. You've actually had experience of negotiating what the challenges are for other young people with cancer when starting out coming from a point where you've, you know, lost fitness or maybe never done something like this before yeah. got issues yeah. with you know how you're feeling about your body what you're physically capable of um perhaps low in energy what would you say to people who are unsure about starting vaguely tempted by the idea but have a whole load of different perhaps concerns coming to it i
1: think what i've learned certainly because it's a crossfit program that we do fundamentally everything that we do is scaled back to anybody's ability levels first and foremost it's not like a traditional gym setting i suppose for us and i mean i'm using the as, as an example because this is my experience mm-hmm. so it's a community base you come in and it's a wide open space there's no mirrors there's nobody standing in the corner and lifting big heavy weights scaring the life out of you <laughs> and you come in and, you're, and you go through a little induction so you're kind of introduced to everything very slowly and then what we do is we figure out well what can you do? What are you able to do? Well, oh, I find, you know, even just brisk walk, very difficult. Great. Well, let's start there. Mm-hmm. Let's start at a level that you are capable of achieving. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could never do a press up. Okay, no problem. Well, let's scale that way back and let's try mm-hmm. doing it against the wall. Mm-hmm. Let's do something that gets you moving. It gets your heart rate up that you're able to sustain for, say, 10, 15 minutes initially, whatever we need to do. And that's a start. And most people who come in and they do that, they go, oh, oh my goodness, like you don't actually have to go and stand on a treadmill for like half an hour. Like, no, no, you really mm-hmm. don't. And then what they do is go, well, well, I want to get better at that. Well, okay, then let's keep doing that, even mm-hmm. until you get better at it. And that, to me, has worked really well for these young people. And, it's, and they also come in with a sense of community. So they know that they're not, because this program is designed to bring them all together. It's not that we're in there mm-hmm. talking about cancer at all. They try not to talk about it very much at all, but what it does, mm-hmm. it gives people a sense of Well, you've been there. You've been through it. I totally understand it. Oh, that's really good. I'm not alone. And they've all been through it and I can do it too. It's inspiring. And I think that's Mm -hmm. what happens is that we inspire each other to want to be better and to get moving. And that's why it works. And I think it could work for anything, any type of sport, any type of fitness. Mm -hmm. It's just finding a way of, of helping people navigate their path in that. And I yeah. and I navigate that path by offering CrossFit, you know, to these people. And
0: Sounds, what's really brilliant about that, and actually perhaps something I can really take from this, for, say, Bristol to Beijing, this cycle ride, is it's what you're talking about is really very much starting at whatever the level the person is at, it really doesn't matter. And you just take it back to that level. And it's amazing, whatever that is, and you just work from there. And... Yeah it's it's really then what happens next and it's i think what i'm thinking about now in my mind is cycle riders I'm like doing it on a tandem to make it more inclusive but actually still i can imagine you know if you the thought of doing a bit of exercise is not something that you've you've done for a while or doesn't feel that comfortable then saying oh do you want to join on a tandem and you know maybe we'll do 30 50 miles that's probably quite daunting yeah so that's some some food for thought for me yeah
1: that's where my passions lie you know Mm -hmm. and trying to through experience i'm a good bit through that journey now you know i'm eight years since diagnosis and seven years since i was clear you know five years since the mental health stuff so it's all been a process and 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 it's i'm hoping that i've learned enough lessons along the way that Mm -hmm. i can only offer that experience or offer that advice through experience and nothing else you know i'm not qualified in any professional capacity You know, and I would say to anybody who's in that position, please do reach out to someone professional if they're in that situation, you know, mentally. But hopefully listening to this and hearing my experiences will at least resonate in a positive way to someone and go, oh my goodness, that's how I was feeling. And that's kind of what I'm all about. It's just saying, hey, I'm not afraid to speak up about it and talk about the truths of it. And it was pretty damn awful. But there's always, uh, what is it they say? Uh, was it Things will work out in the end. And if it hasn't worked out, it's not the end, pretty much. Nice. So it's like it's like everything works out in the end, and if it hasn't worked out, it's not the end. And I like that, and that's a good way that I live my mm. life. Because if you're in the middle of something thinking, "Oh my goodness, it's really awful," mm. well, it hasn't worked out yet, so it's not the yeah. end.
0: Yeah. You know? I, I always know. think you know, we we are a work in progress. We don't get things right first time, second time, even third time. Yep. Yeah. Yeah generally we all are trying to do our best and if we can just keep on moving forwards then yeah. hopefully things will work out and sometimes they don't and that's just part of life as well
1: precisely so every day we learn every day we grow we reflect and then we get better and we yeah. try and be a better version of ourselves tomorrow than we were the day before and hey if we're doing that look, we're doing really well regardless of your circumstances you know we all have our own battles to to face. Yes. we just have to try and uh, as optimistic
0: as we can yeah and i think it's it's really one of those times when it's the attitude that's if you can get that attitude then the other bits will take care of themselves in in what the output will be and i think it's still a good attitude to have even if life keeps on throwing you it still doesn't work out you still get curveballs. yeah
1: it's we can't control what happens to us, but we can control control how we react to it, right? Yeah,
0: absolutely, I think that's that's a running theme now of the, of the podcast, and I it's something I <laughs> believe in. Agreed. John, it has been an absolute pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for sharing some of your experiences. You have been on quite a journey. I think it's very very cool the way you've been sharing it with other people, and you know helping people coming through, moving on from their own cancer journeys, and and helping them there. As you know, each guest I ask the favourite or most significant place, piece of music and book is, and I would love to hear mm-hmm. yours.
1: So my favourite place, Luke, is uh, the Amalfi Coast in Italy. I've been to plenty of places in the States, but nowhere captures my uh, heart than the Amalfi Coast. It's just a beautiful place to be when you're in there in the baking sun of the summer um, and I just love the way of life down there it's just a lot slower a lot more relaxed
0: I can I see, see why that place. would work for you <laughs> just
1: very good your piece of music favorite music I am very much rock music fan I've got an eclectic taste but generally my heart is uh rock and if I'm being honest emo rock that was my teenage years love it
0: okay <laughs> nice and a particular track
1: Oh, uh, my goodness. Do you know what? Probably uh, The Sharpest Lives by My Chemical Romance. That song just gets me every time.
0: (laughs) The Sharpest Lives, MCR. Yeah. Great. And your favorite book?
1: My favorite book was one I read last year, Endurance, Ernest Shackleton. If there's anything that will demonstrate perseverance and how to lead people out of adversity please read Endurance. It is quite amusing.
0: Thank you for that recommendation. John, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on Facing Up.
1: Thank Likewise. you so much. It's
0: been wonderful. <laughs> and that was my conversation with John Sloan. Thank you for listening and being a part of it. One thing that I'm going to take away from my chat with John is that reaffirmation that I think can't be heard often enough, of the power of exercise to dig yourself out of a hole step by step, and that it is so important to start wherever you are, and that does not matter at all whether you're an Olympic athlete or whether you struggle to walk up the stairs. It really doesn't matter. You've just got to accept I am starting where I'm starting and I'm going to build from there. And it is the process of building and getting better and getting fitter that matters, not the level at which one starts. And I think that is such a valuable message to take away amidst many others. Thank you so much for listening to the Facing Up podcast. Please do subscribe, suggest it to friends and give us a rating. Until next week, goodbye.